Hello and welcome to your review for the 4th of April 2023. I'm your host, as always, Never Leave, Graham McKay, and I'm not joined by Christian this week because he's left us like I always knew he would. He's gone on a jaunt down to London. He's going to see the Back to the Future musical. I'm, I'm quite concerned. I feel like with Christian, he's the kind of person when it comes to Big City, you want to put like a tag on him, like if lost, return to kind of tag, but... Hopefully we'll be here next week, but we have got in his place the finest rump in Rochdale, Stephen Rustic. <laughs> Stephen Russell, how are you, Stephen? Uh, I'm good. I've not been described like that before. Um, but yeah, it's good to be back podcasting. How are you, Graham? I am fantastic. All the better for, for seeing your, your joyful face. You've just come off of uh, a trial, not that you were on trial, uh, but you were involved in the legal process. How is that? How was that? I was I was a juror on a case here, um, and it was it was a lot more intense than I thought um, because it's just everything's so heavy. So it wasn't like um, a really dark trial; it was a drugs case. But um, we returned a verdict of not guilty. Um, yes. But yeah, for the drugs. <laughs> I'm not used to paying attention for that long because um, obviously I usually work from home and stuff, so I can usually just get up and wander about my house. But um, yeah, there was a guy in a wig and a robe who told me I couldn't do that, which yeah. I wasn't. Did you ever? I, I feel as if I was in that environment, I would like want to do some kind of dramatic scene, like tell someone that they can't handle the truth or something like that. Did Did you ever get the the notion to kind of jump up and say something out loud in the court? I didn't because it was scary. But I was elected full person of the jury, so I had to deliver the verdict and. I have never been shitting myself so much as when I stood up to speak because I don't generally like public speaking at the best of times um, and it was terrifying in a courtroom. Was the guy kind of like eyeballing you like say the right thing or I'm going to get you outside? Was, was, was I, I was so anxious that I couldn't make eye contact with anyone walking into the courtroom um, like at all. So didn't at all and then the clerk at the front of the judge is the one who asked the questions. So I was mm. just like staring straight at her and I could not look at anyone else. And then when I said not guilty, the room just erupted into cheers and stuff. And yeah, it, it was quite nice because um, I, I do think he was not guilty. So it was a nice moment. Good. Good. Um, you're quite young for getting involved in this kind of stuff. Like I, I'm 40 and I've never, never had this opportunity, mostly because I'm kind of off the grid in between two countries. Uh, I imagine that's... That yeah, they, they don't like criminals, do it, Graham? Yeah, that's also the reason. I'm too empathetic to the to the criminals. Uh, you've been uh, you, you've been away from the Senate for for a while now. You you stepped away. I think large part of that was because of your massive amount of studies that you've been doing. You you've been wrapping up your masters. I know this because I had the pleasure. I, I did inverted commas under the desk there. Uh, the pleasure of uh, reading uh, your thesis. T- tell us about the, the kind of wrapping up of your studies. What has that been like, and uh, where do you go from here, basically? Yeah, it's been good. So um, that was last year. I started my masters, um, and the course is condensed into one year rather than two. So it's twelve months all officially finished around September. Um, but it's been good. It's I felt a bit more engaged than undergrad because undergrad felt a little bit just like you know, knowing exactly what to put in an essay just to get the marks. Whereas a lot of the classes now have felt a little bit more like an open discussion, which has been good. Um, but yeah, so the essay you read was the protest one um, about sport being allowed in protest, which I think was quite an interesting topic um, that you should maybe bookmark for future reviews, just saying. Um, 
But yeah, um, there, there's a couple of options because so last summer when I stepped away, I was looking at um, a couple of jobs in football and sort of seeing what the next step for me would be. Um, seeing if I wanted to stay working where I was, stay in academia or whatever. Um, and I got through the process for a couple of things. I interviewed for Celtic as a first mm. team analyst um, last summer. Um, but ultimately, nothing like that really panned out. The few opportunities down here that maybe seemed right, I don't think I was ready to like uproot everything to take because obviously, I hope my boss isn't listening. My job right now is dead easy. Um, <laughs> and I've got like a really good work-life balance and I can do my analysis on the side and sort of do research whereas actually working in a football club is a lot more like relentless mm. so you're working a lot of hours and there's no off time um and obviously like the holiday times are totally different you know you always see it every year about working on christmas and stuff like that so i ended up starting up my masters last year and i have enjoyed it to the point that i am considering whether my next step should be a phd or not um mm specifically in Juego de Posición, which we'll all, should, sure. all, should all be familiar in by now because that's the system that Ange Postagoglu has implemented at Celtic. Oh, you got the link, the coming back to get this. But you've still got the podcast flow, um, Stephen. But I do want to uh, kind of put the brakes on a little bit on that one because you skipped over the, the aspect that you interviewed for Celtic. I think the listeners would be very interested in what the process was like for that. Like, how did you become aware of the the position? How what was the application process like? What we expected to do? Um, obviously, we know from the past with with Jack getting the the role at Celtic, it was very much he was approached. And I think it was before Celtic were really aware of uh, analysts and stuff like that. So I think the process might be a bit different now. So what what was it like? You you applied. What was the application like, and what happened after that? Yeah, so you, you're right that the process is totally different. So um, I hope Jack doesn't mind me saying, but um, it wasn't like a job application for him. It was more that his work had been found online. He was asked to go up to Linux Town for a chat directly one to one. That wasn't like um, you know, a job with other people competing for it. Um. So whereas this, there's a website called Jobs in Football that essentially all these sort of jobs go through. It's a centralized space for any of these sort of like technical staff jobs tend to get posted on this site. So just half out of interest, to be honest, I'll keep an eye on it anyway, um, just to see, because it's nice to see what clubs are doing, what like um, that was the first sniff that Man United were overhauling a lot of their recruitment process Mm -hmm. when the jobs started to go up on there. So it's... A good site to monitor, and I saw the advert last summer for Celtic wanting a first-team analyst. Um, and this was, I think it was shortly after they hired the new data analyst. Um, I couldn't be 100% sure, but I think so. Um, so the application, generally, it's it's very similar when you're applying for a job in football to any other job in that it's a CV cover letter or whatever. But what was quite unique about this was, for the most part, the sort of stumbling block in football is experience because there's still perceptions that if you've played the game, you'll perform better as a coach or an analyst. And I don't personally believe that's true, but that's the perception that's widely held. So a lot of the time, it's a case of, you know, that sort of paradox of you need experience to get experience, but they don't want to hire anyone without experience. It's that sort of cycle. But Celtics, obviously, presumably with the success with um, Alex and Jack before him, 
they actually mentioned in their advert that they you know would be happy to look at anyone who'd done any blogging and stuff like that and it's the only advert i've seen for an analyst in elite football that actually mentions blogging by its name Mm. um so i have an ongoing analyst cv that i just sort of keep up to date in case opportunities come up so i sent that in and a cover letter and then i can't remember the timeline now it was so long ago um maybe a few weeks month later i got the email back saying that was invited to interview um and this is where a task was set. So I later found out that a big part of it was, I don't know if you remember the end of last season, the analysis I posted um, about how Ange pushed the defensive line higher and then it mm. highlighted like, some issues with Ralston and stuff like that, quite a comprehensive season review. I was told that that played quite a big role in me getting the interview um, because that was like quite comprehensive. It showed what we'd done and the way I'd sort of like, highlight things sat well. So I was set the task of essentially preparing an opposition report on um, Bodo Glimt, which I think from the club perspective, considering that obviously we went out to them and the tie was quite smart, um, seeing what everyone could produce. So I was to produce a opposition report on that and present it at Lennox Town. So I came up for the trip um, and I've got to say, it was some buzz to see actually going inside Lennox Town. Um, Because I was chatting with some of the guys there and because obviously some of the staff obviously are fans themselves. And I was like, regardless of the job, this is insane. I'm inside mm-hmm. Lennox Town, um, which I think we must get a lot because we seem quite understanding of that. But um, yeah, so I presented to an interview panel, um, which included a few of the backroom staff. So like the head of analysis, um, a couple of the guys who do the opposition analysis at the minute. Um, John Kennedy was there, mm-hmm. um, who lovely guy, by the way. Lovely. Um, did he smile or did he just like that? He actually has quite a dry sense of humour, I think. I, I don't want to say too much from the hour I was there with him and make assumptions, but yeah, he, he was really funny, to be fair. Um, but yeah, so I presented to the room and stuff, and then... So this was when, presenting your analysis of Bodo Glimt from a kind of... Would it be from a kind of a how would Celtic beat Bodo Glimt, or this is how Bodo Glimt perform? Yeah, how we would beat them. So it was essentially like sort of... When you do opposition analysis, you typically want to look at how the team play, but then you'd want to reference that to, you know, sort of the points in your team. Because although I'm saying, I guess it depends a lot on what the coach prefers, because you can. So I have picked up freelance work in the past um, for an organization called the PFSA, which is the Professional Football Scouting Association. Um, and they essentially just want everything standardized. They don't want you to do work like, from a team's perspective, they just want everyone able to produce reports in the same way. And that way, if a club contacts them saying, look, we just need a report done on this, they know exactly what they're getting. Mm. And then they can make the decisions about what to do. But generally, I think from the club perspective, you want to relate that back to the team. So that's what I was doing. Um, obviously, this was in a bit of a strange situation in the idea that we just played Bodoglum twice. So we had a bit of that. So um touched on some of the stuff that had happened in that game and debated that with some of the guys um, there, uh, what I thought, what they thought and stuff like that, which I think was really interesting. Um, but also, Was there any kind of response from them that surprised you about how they they saw the game or, or did they not kind of show their hands like that? Um, not myself. I think it was Kennedy who mostly discussed sort of like the tactical side to me because when I'd finished presenting and stuff, he wanted me to go back to one of my points so we could discuss it a little bit further. Um, 
but it was just a preference. So we were discussing the shape of the midfield, I think. Um, because obviously we press in a 4-4-2. Um, mm-hmm. and Bordeaux had like a sort of in their attacking structure five forward. And I was sort of coming up with the idea that if we'd have went to a one two structure in the midfield, like like we do in build up, and sort of like instead of having the two up top, and we pushed um either the eights or the wingers forward in the press then we could have stopped how they progressed the ball. And his sort of side was, which is obviously what has happened in the game, that if you do that, we end up underloaded at the back. Mm-hmm. And it can be really easy for Bordeaux to overload us. So obviously that's just a matter of opinion. That's how aggressive you want to be. Or okay, I guess the counter to my point would be that that can be quite like naive or however it would pan out. But that was generally sort of like the only thing we discussed. But um, no, it was really interesting doing that sort of thing for a club because obviously um I guess for any new listeners I was um with the cynic for a while where Christian and me would do and Aaron when he was there as well would do this sort of stuff and we'd do it for teams so it was nice doing it um in a club setting and ultimately that's what the job decision came down to so I found out later that it was down to the last I think it was about seven or eight or something and the main point was that I didn't have any coaching badges. Oh, well, I've got like level one, but that's not really a thing because that takes like a week to do. Um, but so the experience I've got is just like, you know, local teams, small stuff. Um, and there was someone who applied whose presentation was equally as good as mine, but they also already had, I think it was either a CRB license. Mm. So they already had a bit of actual coaching experience in professional football and they had... Um, obviously the other analytical skills as well so from the experience perspective from the cost perspective that made more sense um because i think it's quite interesting um obviously we've said about jack doing this before i was talking to jack about this a little while ago that the analyst role is kind of changing it's becoming more and more rare to get lifelong analysts now and what you're seeing a lot more of is people going down the sort of you know, essentially what Michael Beale has done, starting as an analyst, doing and then going into coaching and sort of ending up becoming a football manager. And that because I mean the football analyst life it's it's not great. It doesn't pay the best. It's mm. it's not fantastic. Um so you are seeing that happen a lot more. And I think that's essentially a sort of thought process in one of these hires. It's not just for how we can hire somebody now who can do what we want them to do in this job it's how can we hire somebody now who can do this job but can also like pay us back in the future and moving into coaching um but yeah that that was essentially the feedback i got from the interview um but yeah overall i think it was quite enjoyable to be honest getting a nosy around inside lennox town a little tour yeah and uh, i think knowing you beforehand it was very much a kind of like let's see how this goes um situation it wasn't as if you had mass expectations of being like the ultimate first choice right away, especially you're just starting out in your career. But you, you you mentioned it was like a first team analyst thing. And I think people that know you from your work in this would think that you are much more of a data analyst. What What is the kind of um, distinction between those roles? And obviously with your, your thinking about moving into a PhD and with this idea of needing coaching badges going forward, what, what do you see as the next steps? Is it, is it, do you still have that kind of ambition to be moving into like a football club? And would you be going for coaching badges along with the PhD? Or would are you, are you thinking about just moving into purely theoretical? Um, 
this is a big discussion I've had with um, a lot of people. So when, when I got the call with the feedback from the interview and stuff, um, this was a bit of the discussion I had because I think I've always sort of had one foot in, one foot out because the biggest weakness I have um, that I can acknowledge within myself is that I'm generally just not that great with people, like at the people side of things. So presenting the analysis on like a PowerPoint or on a podcast is one thing. Standing up and delivering that as a coach from the sideline is a very different skill and it's one that I don't think I'm good at. But possibly more fundamentally, I'm not sure how much I enjoy that side of it. I think I really enjoy dissecting things, finding solutions. Um, for anyone who's been following my work this year on my newsletter at stephenrussell.substack.com, um, shameless self-plug there, um, <laughs> that's what I sort of lean towards a lot more, of, you know, proposing this sort of solution-based work of here's a problem, with, but here's also how we would solve it. So I do enjoy that aspect, but I'm a very antisocial introverted person really so in terms of going into a club and working like that every day compared to the sort of theoretical I mean you, you, the podcast listeners can't see but I've got the the beard going on the long hair I'm very much just sit in my room and write kind of in my manic writer era at the minute um <laughs> so I think that side of going into academia definitely appeals to me but I think I'm I'm happy enough at the minute to just play it by ear. I'm mm. I'm comfortable in what I'm doing. Generally, still working in gambling, um, but I think it's interesting as well the difference between data analysis and tactical analysis because you are right that a lot of the work that I have done is in data. Um, you know, we've discussed this with my models before. Obviously, it links to my current job and stuff like that. But fundamentally, I started out. As a tactical analyst, I learned about all the data. After, I mean, when I first um, met Christian, I didn't even know what XG was. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think our earliest conversation on WhatsApp was asking him to explain that and expected assists. But um, God, that was a while ago. He infects uh, everyone, doesn't he? He's just like a, he's some kind of like airborne illness. That's a, a robot sent back in time to teach <laughs> about expected goals. But um yeah, so I think I've gotten a lot better at pairing them, but a conversation Christian and me have quite frequently is the more we work with data, the more sceptical of it we become because it is severely limited. But in terms of the club aspect, the difference there is probably that I think most analysts are at least literate in data. Where data really comes in is recruitment. Like that's where, because essentially like when we discuss a lot of these models, an argument is always right, but you can see that. And to an extent, that's true. Obviously, sometimes it'll unearth something you don't. But when we talk about like possession value and like this player's passing really well and progressing the ball, it's like, well, you can see that. And the model has some flaws. So your eyes are surely better. And in a lot of ways, compared to some of these models, that is true. The point is scalability. Mm. You can do that when you can watch Celtic week in, week out, know what a player typically does, and then know what they do in this game. But you probably couldn't scrutinise a team that much if you were trying to do it for even two or three teams. So then when you're trying to do it for hundreds, if not thousands of teams worldwide, you cannot keep up with them like that. And that's generally why you would want data-specific specialists in and around the club to be able to sort of understand that. It's fascinating. Yeah, well, I'm glad Celtic uh, 
appointed someone into that position. Um, I've just noticed, and this is kind of one of the news news stories that I, I, I saw for this, that uh, Liverpool are appointing a director of research. But did you see this story? I haven't actually. No, they're, they're appointing a, di- a director of research, and uh, it's fascinating because I think it's just going to become more and more, a, 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 especially I think for Liverpool teams like Liverpool that are maybe trying to. They're trying to be at the, the top table without spending the ultimate top table money. You know what I mean? Yeah. They're not spending the Man City money. So I think they're just trying to get a legs up, leg up whenever, wherever they can. But we, we'll move on from that just now. We're going to, this review is going to be slightly different. We're not going to have the images because essentially, uh, Christian just, uh, left us. He ditched us and he's the one with the ability to screenshot. I, I know it's like, STRG and then one letter in my keyboard, but I don't know how to do that. So I, I could have good at it, but, uh, that's uh, just another time. So no no screenshots this week, but Stephen is here to paint pictures with his words, which he's so so good at doing. So we're gonna go through the game. Uh, the the kind of the, the, the parts of the game that jumped out at us because I don't think all of it is uh, valuable. But we're gonna uh, look at the things that were most apparent. Uh, before we do, Stephen, we, we beat Ross County 2 0. I think we're going into this hoping momentum. We've got the game next uh, next weekend against Rangers. I think most of the team was rested over the last couple of weeks because of uh, not many uh, cap, not many call ups for the players. I think a lot of fans were maybe expecting, coupled with the fact that Ross County are not really performing that well this season, they've lost a couple of their key players from last season. Uh, I think people were expecting it to be a bit more comfortable than it was, even with the loss of uh, like Katati and and Moy. What did you think of the the, the game overall? Why do you think it was a bit trickier than than most people would have thought it was going to be? So I think County are quite interesting in this because um, we've spoken about how much more they man mark. And last season we had um, is it a hat trick Jack and Mac scored against them, and we were sort of talking about that game afterwards and. A big thing was how much they were man marking and leaving space in the box and like allowing us to essentially get the ball in. The problem here is that Ross County started doing something this season that's been really effective. Um I mean essentially what they do is they just do not pressure the centre backs. So you'll recall from one of the earlier games against Ross County this season, where Carter Vickers was not challenged at all while he was carrying the ball. So he mm-hmm. carries it. There's no pass because all the options are being tightly man marked. So he carries on and he's into the opposition half and nothing happens. And he just sort of panics and tries to pass what and ends up putting it out for a corner, uh, for a goal kick, sorry. Um, and that's essentially what County have done. They've acknowledged that neither centre-back are really threatening. So they don't need to put pressure on them. They can have one striker between them because when we talk about man-marking systems, generally what you'll see is you'll see um, a minus one up front because if you go to the point where you man-mark every opposition player, including the two centre-backs, then that means at the back you're going man-for-man, which means it's going to be a lot easier to get the hold of the defenders. So they usually want two centre-backs on the opposition striker. To do that, a player has to be taken from elsewhere. It makes sense to do it from the furthest point from your own goal. Um, But that's generally fine here because they know that between them, Starfelt and Carter Vickers just aren't a threat. Neither of them are really incisive. They're not great on the ball. They refuse to carry it forward, um, which I think we can talk about in a little bit more detail shortly because I've got some points around that as well. Um, And that sort of set the tone for the first half because I think, I don't know about you, but the first half just felt bitty, struggly, and 
I think that's, I guess, a bit dull to watch. Mm. Yeah, I definitely felt as if it was uh, like Ross County from the from the first half of last season, where we, we didn't have the players. Uh, we weren't really getting Kilo uh, into positions or anything like that. And you, you alluded to it there, and I think um, this for me was a bit the most frustrated I felt with the, the centre backs in a domestic game. Like this, this to me felt like a precursor to being in the Champions League again because. There was a time where CCV tried to pass the ball to Johnson, rolled it out the park. There were times, I think there was one moment where Starfield burst forward, got got through lines, and then turned back and passed it to CCV. It, there was just, and I'm not, I'm not even like pinpointing CCV in particular here because I think Starfield was just as bad. They were just this, that triangle at the back. It was a constant moving back to the goalkeeper, passing to the fullbacks, back to the centre backs, and it was just chronic to watch. Um, I think Matt O'Reilly was coming for a lot of criticism. Uh, Callum McGregor looked really out of sorts in that number eight as well. And I think a lot of it was just to do, well, you can tell me, a lot, to me it seemed as if a lot of it was just because they weren't getting the ball quickly enough from the defence. Take, take it away. You're absolutely right. Um, because, so I released a newsletter um, earlier in the season that was essentially a criticism of the way Ange um, interprets Quego de Pacifion, which is positional play. It's the system that we sort of, or the approach rather that we use, which is essentially based on like, a lot of geometric rules and stuff like that. But it's the idea that you can use sort of position as your key reference point, which is why we always such have like such a, a symmetrical looking team. That's essentially what that is. It's rather than the players trying to like cluster around the ball carrier or, you know, gather in they'll always be in the structure because the idea is that following these positionist rules, then think, you know, the opposition shape won't go up. It'll find weaknesses. It'll do that because it's very automated and rigid. The problem is that a key concept with this. So the whole point of doing it is to generate three kinds of superiorities, numeric, um, qualitative and positional. So numerical is literally just overloads. And then the other two, um, qualitative are just better players in 1v1s, like the wide wingers with an isolated fullback. And positional is um, generally what we see is like, you know, the free eights where they get a bit higher between the lines. Mm. They're not as important right now, though. So the key concept is how we can create these overloads. A big part of that is a centre-back carrying the ball forward because then all of a sudden you have an extra player in that area, right? Because a centre-back typically, like... And when I'm saying typically, we're talking about traditional football years back because... This has been going on essentially since Pep Guardiola made it famous in elite football. Um, or at least, you know, this is when it's been going on at the elite level. Um, so before that, it wasn't really a thing for centre-backs to carry the ball out because that wasn't part of the job. But now when they do that, it creates this numerical advantage in the centre of the pitch because when they carry the ball out, the opposition player that's generally sat around the pivot needs to do something about it. You can't just let a player walk up the pitch because the player might do something. Um, so they would then jump up. And we saw this with Ayer all the time. That player at the front of the press would jump up onto Ayer. Ayer would either take it round him or play the pass in. But that stretches the opposition shape. It pulls somebody forward and creates it. Now, the thing with Ross County is it's kind of um, a double jeopardy thing going on because neither Carter Vickers nor Starfelt are very good at carrying the ball forward. They kind of get to the halfway line, stop and just pass it. Ross County have seen this sort of weakness and they've just said, we're just going to let them have the ball. You know, we'll 
we just won't pressure them. We won't let them create that numerical advantage because we know that if we let them come forward, they won't do anything with it anyway. And that's where, when you're looking at like players like Matt O'Reilly in this game where it looks like he's really struggling, it's because he's essentially being man-marked out of the game. The game is staying very tight and compact because the centre-backs aren't doing that part of it. And this, I think, comes on to a really good point about sort of these rigid sort of systems. Because I think there's obviously been a lot of talk about Matt O'Reilly's form, which I don't think has been as bad as people have been making out. I think there's just been a couple of notable unlucky moments, you know, with like finishing or whatever that stand out. But I think the thing is, people say, right, he's had a bit of time out of the team or whatever. He should come back in and, you know, he should grab the game. And the system doesn't really allow for individuals to do that because the whole point is that individuals don't have that freedom. And you'll recall, I think it was in December, where Ange had the quote when Jota was dropped, where he was saying, like, yeah, a few players have been dropped because they're not doing what we want them to do in training. They're not hitting the right areas. It didn't matter that Jota could create chances by cutting inside, because that's against the system. Ange has a system, stick to it, and that'll bring results. If you're doing your own thing, that's not allowed. And that's the point with these systems. How many times have you seen it with Pep Guardiola where a player's dropped or kicked out of the team or whatever because he's not doing exactly what he wants because it's to do with how strict the system is and how he wants things to happen. The decision shouldn't be on the players. So you're never going to have a player like Matt O'Reilly being able to come into the game, drop deep to pick up the ball off them or whatever and start carrying it and taking it himself because that's not his job. He has to be in that space further forward for when the ball gets forward. He's then in a position to generate a positional superiority and move on with the next phase. And I think there is a really, really good example of how this sort of looks in two different ways. So if you recall the World Cup, did you watch Argentina's first game with Saudi Arabia? I didn't watch the World Cup because I, I support LGBTQ rights. I'm very, very glad, but I had to for work. So, <laughs> but, um, God, I have to say I work in gambling as well. I might as well just <laughs> straight to hell now. Um, Sorry, yes, I did watch the game. Oh, why? Okay, let's see how see how it is. Um, <laughs> in that game, Argentina tried to set up with a much more positionist approach, which. As part of a wider debate, um, if you read any of Jamie Hamilton's work, um, mm. I think that's at Sterling underscore J on Twitter. Apologies if that's wrong. Um, he talks a lot about positionism and relationism. And typically positionism is quite a Eurocentric ideal, whereas relationism tends to be a lot more South American. But obviously with colonialism, you then have parts of South America that are a little bit more Eurocentric. And you can see this in a lot of things. So Brazil, for example, were playing quite European football and it failed. And this is what happened against Saudi Arabia. Argentina were playing a much more positionist thing that's not true to La Nuestra, which is their style of football. And it didn't work because you have a player like Messi, for example, then he couldn't come deep and receive the ball because by these strict geometric rules, he has to stay in this position higher up and he has to wait there. What happened then was later in the tournament, they started to switch back to a more relationist approach. Um, they started to become a little bit more true to their ideals. And this isn't saying one's better than the other, by the way, because if this is the football they've grown up with, you can't suddenly say, right, well, you're positionist now, because mm. they've not grown up with that. Um, and what you saw then later in the tournament was it was more geared to set up these relations with Messi rather than these strict geometric rules. It was about how we could sort of gear the football that way. And then you saw Messi dropping deep because he suddenly wasn't shackled by these rules. So Messi was dropping deep into six and stuff like that. And then you saw later in the tournament, Messi was then able to exert some sort of individual control over the games. 
because he wasn't shackled by the system. And again, not saying that the idea of a strict system is bad, but you also can't expect players like you know, Matt O'Reilly or Messi to grab hold of a game in the way you might want them to in this sort of system. The I guess it comes back to one of Christian's favourite things. If this is a sort of football that you're playing and it's very effective, we've seen that, then trust the process is kind of just the mantra. The the kind of uh, comparison that people have been making uh, is Aaron Moy has been able to grab the game by the scuff of the neck, create assists, create goals. So if he's stepping out of that system and showing some kind of, and this is where uh, you're standing in for me trying to cre- cancel Christian. I'm going to try and cancel you now. <laughs> if Aaron Moy is able to step out of that system and show individual brilliance to create things for Celtic, Surely Matt O'Reilly can be doing that as well. I mean, I think Matt O'Reilly had a, a great game off the ball against West County, but I mean, you can see why people would be criticism in the first half because there was a few less passes. He did, um, if, if uh, Kyogo had gone on to finish that fantastic move later on, people would be always remembering the fantastic Matt O'Reilly pass to release Dyson Maeda, but the fact that Kyogo missed it means that no one's going to remember the fantastic Matt O'Reilly pass. So, what do, what do you say to that kind of criticism that that even in that system he still seems to be struggling a little bit? Not in the whole season, I think maybe just the last few months with with the impact of Aaron coming in. I think the thing there is that I disagree that Aaron Moy is grabbing games in the way that we're sort of describing because goals and assists, you know, like you've just said there, we, we're prone to outcome bias and we're all like that. Because if something goes in, I mean, see, even when you put together an opposition analysis report at club level, you tend to stick the examples that land a goal in rather than the ones that don't, because Mm. it just, it triggers a reaction, right? And we're all human. We can't avoid that. But what we're seeing with Aaron Moy is, I think the Rangers game is actually a really good example of, that wasn't necessarily him grabbing the game or doing anything like that. He'd essentially stayed in that central space that Rangers made a mistake and didn't cover because of the way they were trying to move up onto McGregor. Um, The fact that Kamara was tasked with that meant that that space was left. Um, Because I don't think it's in doubt that Aaron Moy is a good footballer. I think it comes back to this idea of whether his weaknesses are good or bad for the system. And this, again, is sort of the point of the trust the process stuff in that Matt O'Reilly, if you think he's out of form or whatever, that's fine. It it could be true. I, I don't think he's been as bad as has been made out. But if he's getting into the right areas, then by a positionist system, that's fine because that's all you need them to do. The players are essentially a simplified 2D tactics board to the manager. right? And what you have with Aaron Moy that presents an issue, there's two main things really. One is in build-up that he's very, very sort of slow and methodical in that he's not really great for playing first-time passes forward and stuff, which what that results in is him ending up drifting out wide so he's got a little bit more time on the ball. The problem there is that we don't have Yosem Juranovic anymore to make the underlapping runs. If we did, it'd be fine because last season, um, what you saw a lot of was Matt O'Reilly was dropping out more and we had Juranovic coming through the centre. And that worked really well. If you remember the 3-0 against Rangers, um, the February game, um, that's what was happening a lot there. It was so fluid and they couldn't cope because 
A drops out, right back gets forward. Johnston is not very good at that. Johnston generally in possession is not great um, and in build-up is not great. And this is sort of what you're left with, the Aaron Moyes dropping out and then you're not really left with any sort of incision in that area. And that's a problem because a big part of positionism is this sort of almost symmetrical, like, I guess you'd call it a network of nodes almost, the players covering the whole pitch. And this was the thing with Ralston, right, that when he was overlapping, it was a problem because we were leaving the same area in the centre of the pitch. And the point is that a big part of these rules is you, you can't leave areas like that. If one player goes out, someone needs to come in and cover it. And that's the problem that Aaron Moy drops out because he's slow. The other problem is just defensive transitions. Like, he's just not great. He's He does not track back well. And, I mean, I guess his age and sort of the way he moves, you're probably not expecting him to. But in terms of comparison, if you were to ask, like, big game, which one would I start? then I think it has to be Matt O'Reilly, purely, even if he's out of form, purely by virtue of this is the system we play, this is what we've subscribed to. When we've signed Postacoglu, we've signed an advocate of Juego de Pacifion, and this is what that looks like, a very rigid positionist system where it's essentially wanting to be a plug-and-play of almost chess-like. The players are not to think for themselves, they're not to do, think, they're to do what the structure dictates, and uh, Matt O'Reilly's positioning is much more beneficial to the overall structure than Aaron Moises. And we're going to get onto this in great detail when we talk about Bernabe, but just to give the listener, uh, if they, they've never heard that, because before you sent me your your 20-minute voice, you know, and uh, I mentioned it last week on, on the podcast, and uh, just to let everyone know, in the very, the very beginning of the voice note, there's a quote that says, I don't know how familiar you are with Plato and Aristotle. That's the type of voice note it was about uh, Celtic's <laughs> positional play. Uh, this kind of idea of it being a positional system, mm. are we talking about and if you're looking at the football pitch from above, it is like this is a four-three-three system, and the players don't have any kind of freedom of choice about what they do. But we do know that one of the things that we're famed for at the start of the season, your your friend, what's your your analyst friend, that you, your your frenemy on the, the famous one that has the books and stuff. What is his name again? You know the uh, one if talking about people I've fallen out with on Twitter. You can narrow it down. <laughs> He he wrote he wrote the he he's on like the Guardian podcast and stuff you know the awesome. no he still can't remember the the English guy I can't remember his I, name I fall out with plenty of people <laughs> but he's he was uh, praising us uh, I think he'd watched the the three 0 game uh, last season against Rangers and he was talking about the rotations mm. so this idea of positional a positional structure kind of like. How does that merge? How does that work with this idea of rotating? How can people rotate if they've not got the freedom to be moving out of their position? Because it's about the sort of coverage. So the idea is that these positions are the sort of like primary reference point almost. Um, so what you'll see generally in these positionist teams is if I'm trying to think back of a good example, um, let's go back to sort of Barcelona before inverted fullbacks were trendy. And the wingers were inside because that was sort of what was happening at the time, right? Whenever the winger left the inside channel to move out onto the wing, somebody else had to come into the wing because one of the rules was about the number of players in a vertical corridor. When we say that, you can split the pitch in five. You've got the two wings, the two half spaces in the centre. 
So you have these sort of rules. So there is a fluidity in the sense that one player moves out, another one knows to move in, and then you can sort of rotate like that. But that's still quite rigid. So, and th- this is difficult to give a straight answer to because this is an ongoing debate in like analytic circles of the idea of a freedom as a player. Because Pep Guardiola's argument to this sort of thing is that by giving them this structure and removing these other sort of decisions that uh, that he should be making, um, he gives the player freedom within this sort of tactical framework, right? And you can see that to an extent with um, what we do to generate qualitative superiorities with the wingers, right? The idea is that if, if we're playing on one side, the other winger should still hug the touchline. When we switch, they end up in a 1v1 with the opposition fullback because they've been isolated. So you've still got the freedom in the idea that the winger then is in a 1v1, he can be a little bit creative. But it's still quite prescriptive in the idea that hug the touchline, you have to wait there, that's your position, the ball comes to you. And then even then, as we know, as we've heard from Ange, the idea is hit the byline, cut the ball back. Whereas... And I'd really recommend watching some River Plate if you can find some footage um, for this. I thought you said Riverdale for a second there, and I was like, where the fuck have we gone here? <laughs> <laughs> River Plate, not Riverdale. River Plate. Um, for sort of more relationist football, because what you'll see there is, and again, I'm conscious of the word choice here, because whether they are diametrically opposed as approaches is also in debate. Um the best thing I can recommend to read on this is Jimmy Hamilton's work. It is really, really good. And there's always lots of examples of what he means. But um, what you'll see there is you'll see players clustering around the ball. And if you were to look at their um, passing networks compared to ours or Man City's, it's more like a mess and it changes every game. Whereas ours, you can see it's pretty consistent every game, right? It's that same sort of like two, three base and then the four and the one. And that doesn't really change. If it changes, you think, oh, that was a bit dodgy. Why does it not look right this game? Whereas theirs is not about that. It's not about this sort of rigid structure. It's about relating to the um, ball carrier. And we'll get into this a bit more when we talk about Burnaby. But this is sort of the two opposing approaches. So whether you would consider that as freedom for the player, um, being in the structure and allowed to make decisions from there, or just having more freedom to relate as they can there, is dependent on your individual interpretation of these sort of systems. But... The argument against more positionist approaches generally in terms of relationism and something that Jamie argues quite often is the idea that it dehumanises football. It turns it into this sort of 2D bird's eye approach of players that are dots on a tactics board. Move it here. If you stay there instead of there, then you'll have this advantage and whatever else. Whereas football's not played like that. Football's three-dimensional. The players can relate to the space around them and relate to the things that are happening and they're more well-placed to make certain decisions. And it can get quite complex when you try and break it down on a philosophical level over, like I said, what these freedoms are or what these approaches mean for footballers as players. But ultimately, when you do have a positionist approach um, implemented at club level like we have, it can be quite limiting for players in what they can do because... I mean, how often have we seen it? Like David Turnbull's a really good example, him shooting from distance. We think that's bad anyway, generally just because it's, it's a waste of possession. But that's why he's not really getting the place in the team as with other deficiencies because he's breaking from the rules. He doesn't have that freedom because it's a prescriptive system. 
Do you, I mean, this is going to become, this is a stupid question given that we're record breaking uh, this season and we're going to end up in like a massive points total. But do you think when it comes to a league like the Scottish League, I, I'm, I shouldn't even ask this question, <laughs> would it not make more sense to give certain players more freedom to because they're clearly going to be better than the players they're up against? Possibly. I mean, that's the point. So, Maybe last year, if you asked most people on this debate which system was like better, I think it would have been nearly a clean sweep for people saying, oh, well, position isn't better, it's what all the best teams are doing. But then Argentina have just won the World Cup, and that could be a catalyst, because that's not the football they were playing. Um, and the, the big problem with trying to compare the styles is that generally relationism is more predominant in South America where teams don't have the resources that European elite teams do. So it, it becomes quite tricky to contrast. And ultimately, it's it's hard because I'm quite critical of positionism in terms of how rigid it can be. But it's still an absolutely effective approach, as we've seen, because Ange has come in, implemented it, plugged and played with different players, and we've romped the league. Mm. So it's tricky. Um and then, obviously, the other thing we need to consider is scaling up to Europe. Which one scales up better? That honestly could not give you a straight answer on that. Um, but I guess the other thing is, for winning the league, without being disrespectful to the other teams, I think most average managers with the resources of Celtic or Rangers could beat most teams in Scotland without an intricate system or anything else because the, the gap in resources truly is cosmic. I mean, I guess that's what most people would want to know, like how 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 effective this, this kind of system would be as an underdog, as an underdog team. Are there any, are there many underdog teams in world football that are, that are playing this this system, or uh, do you know of any successful underdog teams that are playing uh, relational football? I mean, there's not many teams that are entirely relational in Europe as a whole that I'm aware of, or at least, you know, in the sort of top European games that... Can you, can I, you actually yeah. define relational a bit more? Uh, because I think we've, we've defined the positional quite well, but just what exactly is the rela- relational? What exactly does that mean? So it's generally to do with more, instead of your sort of primary reference being, and th- this is very simplified because, I mean, for one, a lot of the resources on this are not in English, so it's struggling through translations and... With a mix of a dictionary and Google Translate, but um, it's more to do with. So let's use an example. You're building up, the ball goes to the left centre back. If your reference point then as another player is your position, you're going to go stand off, um, sort of like in that inverted right back position or whatever, because that's your position and you're going to stand there regardless. That, that's quite positionist, right? Mm. Whereas if you're a relationist, you're not going to have a set position. You're going to sort of try and cluster around. And what you'll tend to see, is you'll see almost like a circular shape form around the ball carrier. So in the Bernard Bay article that um, I've just released, there's a screenshot from when Bernard Bay was at Lanus. And what you'll see there is the centre-back's got the ball, and then Bernard Bay and another player are stood sort of to form a close-knit uh, triangle. But then the rest of the team is almost kind of like dotted around in a, in a rough circular shape around them. Because the idea is, You'll see relationist techniques, so they're called different things in different languages, um, which we'll get onto. And I feel like being a bit more pretentious, but um, for now, we'll just got like a one-two, right? Mm. Give and go. Yeah, that's a relationist technique because 
it's not something that you know positionism is enamored with trying to create because that's more your wider structure whereas if you wanted to create one twos then you'd be thinking right well wherever the guy carrying the ball is we need to kind of be in a position roughly near him in a bit of space where as soon as the ball comes back to us we can first time it back to him but does that kind of make sense all right right so and then you've got other techniques as well and um, where like again w- without going into the the fancy portuguese names and being pretentious you've got like if you have players sort of who make a line of three the middle one lets the ball run through his legs to get to the other one. You couldn't generate something like that with a positionist system because you couldn't form that line within the opposition block that's consistent with your position every game. Mm. Whereas if you're more looking to relate with your teammates, then you can actually acknowledge, you know, I'm a real player playing a real game against real opposition here. There's a space so I can sort of move into it to get a better angle with my teammate and stuff like that. So... Even getting definitions at the minute, because it, it's, I think Jamie's probably one of the first to bring it into English speaking analysis circles. Um, so getting definitions is still quite tricky because it's just in the sort of codifying stage of what these concepts can be called. But when we're looking at it, that's generally what you'd see that more sort of oriented around the ball carrier. You generally associate more relationist football, structured position-based is positionist it feels very the, the the relational one feels very much like how football used to be <laughs> and it, it makes me kind of uh, hanker back for the days where you would have a bit more mavericks in football is that fair to say that that would be a much more maverick type football where it is just about feeling what's happening on the pitch and trying to kind of relate and re- react to it as it's happening yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that's fair to say. I mean, when you're talking about like older football, if you look back to like 70s Brazil and stuff, that, you know, they were the big teams at the time. That's the sort of football you were seeing. And uh, so John McKenzie, um, who has been on the podcast before, mm-hmm. has also weighed in on this. And just for sort of like clarity, I don't think he thinks these approaches are as diametrically opposed as like Jamie does, for instance. But generally, they're both um, quite big um, on this topic of discussing it. Um, but when John has been discussing it, he sort of talks about these things more in terms of um, the dialectic, in terms of like Hegel's work. So the idea that initially you had more relationist football, but that was through a lack of understanding. Then what we've seen over the past decade is a swing to the total, total opposite. And now you're sort of seeing elements of both as you land somewhere sort of in the middle, you know, like sort of, thesis antithesis and then synthesis Mm. and that's more where he falls again where you fall down on the debate from a philosophical perspective is definitely down to individuals but the point is generally that yeah you're probably right that if you're looking at older football that is more of what you would see because i mean I, i don't think there's much positionism that generally on the elite stage to extreme extents, predates Pep. Not like I can think of off the top of my head anyway. And positional systems obviously make the 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 machine much more important than the cogs. Like the it's much more important than some of its parts, which is, goes back to the idea of trusting a system. And probably kind of um tells us why this season there's I've been doing reactions and you you, you sometimes struggle to get a man of the match because it was just like this was an overall good performance and no one really stood, stood out that much and the reason we're talking about that is perhaps to kind of justify 
why we think players like Matt O'Reilly and Callum McGregor in the eight against Ross County were basically quiet for quite a lot of the match because they just they were in their positions to receive the ball, but they just weren't getting there because the centre backs was being so kind of uh, slow and ponderous on the ball, getting forward with it. One of the the um, the things that we'd been kind of looking looking to see with an eye to to the Champions League um, against Ross County was the idea of Awata sitting in the six and McGregor being in the eight. What did you think of that against Ross County? How, how did you think it worked? Was there anything that gave you hope for it, or was there anything that gave you kind of red flags? I think I think it was largely fine. Um, I mean, if you think there was anything sort of like wrong, then um, please stop me because. Don't want to embarrass myself too much, but I think he was largely fine. I think the main issue I had was simply that he's not Callum McGregor. Um, I remember having this debate like last season about whether Callum McGregor should move back to the eight, and I was firmly against it because I think he just offers far too much as a six. He covers ground well, he makes angles well. He's probably the best player in the Scottish Premiership era, hands down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's just so intelligent with how he plays. So I think anyone coming into that role is going to have a struggle trying to replicate what he does. And I think that's extenuated by the fact that the centre-backs have become so reliant on the full-backs and the pivot to progress the ball essentially for them. So, um, you know, we see it all the time where they essentially just sort of dribble up to the halfway line, roll it short to one of them, and then they do the rest of the work. So I, I don't think Iwata was bad. I think he was fine. I think the problem was more that we've gotten so used to McGregor being able to take the burden from the centre-backs, create things, support the attack in a way that most players couldn't, that Iwata felt a little bit underwhelming purely by virtue of comparison. Yeah. I mean, one of the kind of flipping comments I made during the game was the idea of Iwata being one of our centre-backs instead. <laughs> um, because there's going to be obviously a lot of games... For Celtic, I think I said in a group chat a few weeks ago that you could probably have Tam Rogic in goals for a lot of SPFL games and his upside of being able to play the ball out with his feet would uh, kind of far outweigh the fact that he's not a goalkeeper. Iwata uh, as a centre-back, do you think that is an option for Celtic when you consider the, the lack of threat that you would have against a team like Ross County when it comes to just being able to have the comfort to come out with the ball at his feet? Sure, why not? I mean, when you put that in the chat, I didn't think you were joking. I was all on board for it, him and Kobayashi. Um, <laughs> so I think that shows where I am on this debate. But I think it's the same thing Rogers started to see after he'd been here a while, that ultimately in a lot of these games, you're only conceding barely a handful of chances where the ball even crosses the halfway line. Hmm. And then from there, the ones that actually can carry the ball, like, you know, 40 odd yards towards the goal, is even fewer. The ones who even get a shot, I mean, I think it was last season at a point, you know, Joe Hart was facing fewer than two shots on target a game. Mm. It's just stood about. And that's where you get to the point where that's essentially what Rogers did, right? Just shove a midfielder in a centre back because we get some of the benefits of that. And it's the same sort of point Christian makes a lot with goalkeepers as well. Um the idea that we're just not relying on them to do the defensive side of the job because we don't need it that much. Um and I mean, I don't know where I'd draw the line in the league table of where I'd be thinking, right, maybe not now. But like against most teams in Scotland, you, you probably would get away with that because they're just not challenging us. The sat back so deep that, and especially with the um, two, three rest defence structure we've got at the minute, 
means we're really on top of counter-pressing. So that if teams want to, they either have to play through a counter-press, which I don't think there's many teams in Scotland who could really do that. Maybe even none out with Rangers. Um, and then beyond that, if they want to just lump the ball long, it just becomes a foot race. How often do we see that when we're playing these sort of teams where they just right towards a corner flag and it's just easy for the centre-back to nip out, pick it up and carry on? And this is obviously based on the fact that Iwata was player of the year as a centre-back in Japan. I haven't just pulled it out of the air that he should be playing at the back. Well, uh, I thought we were fully just going in on shoving midfielders at the back, which I'm <laughs> all for. I'd shove Carl McGregor at centre-back, to be fair. Aaron Moy at right-back. Uh, what I wanted to finish on with the game was the subs. Um, friend of the show, Matt Evans, was... Uh, Listen, enamoured with the subs up until obviously Bernabeu scored. Um, there was maybe some criticism online about the, the way that the subs performed, but I, I, I thought O in particular, I thought he is growing in confidence. It looks as if he was trying things. And I just want to you know, bring in a newspaper article that was I was going to talk about last week, but we just didn't get to it because uh, Christian doesn't, never shuts the fuck up. Um, and it was about or basically bringing the Celtic swagger to the, the South Korean camp and to essentially talking about how he is a much he, he thinks he's a much better player now just from the, the few months of experience in Scotland he's talking about the physicality of it getting stronger uh, the idea of playing against uh, defenders that are going to kind of uh, harass him and uh, kick him about and this kind of set me to thinking about the idea of uh, we had uh, Chris Iyer talking about getting kind of bad uh, habits while playing as a centre back for for Celtic, and I wondered about the type of players that would come into Celtic and the the kind of league we have and gain skills from it, skills from the inherent SPFLness of the SPFL. What kind of positions do you think in the team benefit from playing in a league in the, the way that we do? I mean, wingers, attackers, pr- probably is that. I mean, we've spoken about this with wingers before where a young winger, you know, I think Patrick Roberts was the main one we were talking about this when we were all well on board that train. Um, to bring him I never got off. I'm still on. Still on it, yep. Um, <laughs> But the point that was made around then was that he will do better at a team like Celtic where he can mirror, I mean, obviously he never made it into the Man City team, but where he can mirror that setup and like, this is what you would be doing, except on a smaller scale, rather than going to, you know, championship teams, bottom half prem teams, whatever, where you're more of a let's sit back, lump the ball up, you know, this sort of, because it's a totally different thing. So when we're talking about style, we always say that we should be signing players in the style of what we want. And that's essentially the same sort of thing here for the players. You know, go play in the style that you want. And then if you're a traditional centre-back where it's kind of like backs against the wall, get the ball cleared, you're not going to have any fun at Celtic. And, you know, nearly went a podcast without bringing up Shane Duffy. But if you remember that, um, that was the same thing there. It wasn't that he's a bad centre-back. Obviously, he plays in the Premier League, you know, you're not going to get to that level by being a bad footballer out and out. That's just not going to happen, really. Um, but the point was that you can't take a back-to-the-wall defender and shove him in a 35, 40-yard line. It's not going to work because you're not meeting his strengths. And that was no good for Duffy because all of a sudden he looks rotten. 
when he's not, he's doing the exact same stuff he's always done. It's more like a fish out of water. Mm. Um, so I'd say generally, it's young attackers, you know, that are not getting a chance in the team. You know, even like Jota, for example, on the bench at Benfica and stuff, get some game time at Celtic where you're practicing the stuff you want to be practicing a lot more than you would be at any other team. And what what did you make make of all overall when you came on? Did you did you kind of notice the kind of I, I don't know if it was if had a wee bit more cockiness when you came on the part? Yeah, I loved it. Um, I think it's interesting you said about him being physical because I feel like after selling Jack Amakis, we've traded in one really jacked striker for another really jacked striker because yeah, he is stacked. But um, yeah, I reminds me of me in my young days. Yeah, when was that? About a hundred years ago. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I think Christian's trying to um, get me to say a line on this that oh, it's what people thought Jackamacus was, and it's not that far from the truth because stylistically he's quite different to Kyogo, and I think everyone could see that he's not playing off the line as much. He's a bit happier receiving with his back to goal, but also in the way Kyogo would first time the ball as a layoff and then make the vertical run or is more comfortable receiving it and turning. I think the big difference is that, for one, he's incredibly agile. And I think that was always a big issue with Giacomacchus, that when he's trying to do these sort of quicker movements, it took him time because he's not, and he, he was quite imbalanced. So you'd, that's where you get dragged down into, whether he was fouled or he gave away a foul, he'd get dragged into these battles because he, he couldn't make these quick movements with the ball at his feet um, because he just wasn't agile. For his size, always incredibly agile. And that plays into his strengths um, massively for what he's doing. Um, but then I think you've got his control as well, which again, with Giacomacchus, when you saw him trying to control the ball, sometimes it was just really, really bad. Um, it, you know, you'd see it bounce off like his shin and stuff. There was a specific moment um, with Orway, he received the ball from the air and sort of like in the one move, turned it behind him and went. And that really worked because... He is playing a more, I guess you could call it a more target man role than Kyogo, but he's able to do it without contradicting the system in the way Jack and Marcus did, because a big part of our system is the sort of the tempo with which we build up. You know, when we're trying to switch the ball like from one side to the other or move for that sort of rhythm and tempo is really important to the way we're playing football. When Jack and Marcus would back into a defender and sort of like get dragged down into the wrestle, even if he laid it off afterwards, he was taking, you know, two, three seconds and it really killed our momentum. Or is doing what we wanted Jackamakis to do, but a much quicker pace because he's so agile. Um, so I, I think it's a really good option to have, um, and I'm, I'm quite excited by him. I think. I think one kind of criticism, not even a criticism, but one thing people might say is that he's not going to be as um, lethal as Jackamakis. He's not going to get the number of goals. Do you think that's a problem, or do you think uh, always position is much more about maybe try to bring people in and try to link up play a bit more? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Because um, I think again, it's a similar sort of thing we see with Kyogo, where he scores so many goals by virtue of playing off the line and just getting onto them, and that was the same sort of thing with Jackamakis waiting for cutbacks. Um, which obviously, again, he was very, very good at doing. I think overall, we could do very well with a winner team purely by virtue of bringing other players in. Like you say, um, when we're talking about this, I mean, it's not alien for the nine not to lead the line in that way. I mean, before Haaland, that's what Man City were doing. Um, 
very similar structure. When you go back to Pep's Barcelona as well, that's what they were doing when they had the Messi false nine. So it's not imperative to the idea of the sort of system we're playing that you must have a striker playing off the line. You can play this exact system, but in a slightly different way where you don't have that. Um, and I think that is sort of what we've seen, especially with, um, I assume we'll talk about Haksabanovic next. I thought that relationship was quite good when he was bringing him in because I think that's an area Haksabanovic excels in as well, being a little bit more direct as he comes inside, which I think works quite well with what do you, do you Are you surprised that Haxel is not getting more starts? Or do you think Ange always talks about players are going to get at least 30 minutes off the bench, so it is more about a whole match instead of just starts. It's about finishing games as well. Are you surprised that Haxel has not kind of worked his way into that starting bet, or are you happy with his cameos that he's making? Yeah, I think I'm happy enough with the cameos. I mean, it's tough to displace either Jota or Maeda. Um and then as much as I don't think he's massively suitable for the team, I think Anshin may be hesitant to drop a batter at points as well for the way he was arriving late in the box and pouncing on um, loose balls. To score. I mean, it's happened against Rangers like three times now or something, which I think Barisic had learned. But um, yes, I think just by virtue of the sort of wingers we've had, it's been a bit tricky where he's had to be a little bit more patient, but I think it's fine. I think the minutes he's getting, it's good. When he's coming on, he's impressing. Um, and I think it's the sort of thing where we're a little bit more prepared now. If a big bid comes for Jotter in the summer, well, we've been bedding in another winger. Um, and I guess you can move my to the right and that would be fine because the two of them are quite interchangeable. So, yeah, overall, I'm happy enough on that, I think. So we're going to move on to Burnaby now. Uh, you've written an article on your medium. And I think that the overall narrative about him has been in this, including myself on, on this show, is that he he has certain attributes about him. He's, he, he, he seems much more of a normal wing-back than, than what we need from him. Uh, that's the kind of narrative I think a lot of people have been seeing. Um, I've seen people at the weekend saying, even before the goal, that he's, he's not going to make it at Celtic. And, and I essentially last week spoke about the idea that if we can only have 17 foreigners and we have an excellent first choice left back, then it's probably foolish to be bringing in a foreigner to take up that that second place left back position when we've got Adam Montgomery there that could be the understudy. You, you've written an article where you essentially defend Bernabe. You you talk about him and this this contrast of football techniques that we've been talking about in the podcast, the relational, the, the positional. You're talking about him com- coming from a totally different culture and in your article you've got lots of little videos that are, that are fascinating and it shows exactly what you what you mean. It is, it is constantly seeing Bernabe giving and going, as, as I mentioned earlier. It's passing move to the Liverpool groove. He passes to one guy and then makes an angle to receive the ball back. And that is the antithesis of what Ange would be expecting his players to do because they would not be in that that structure, that geometric structure that you mentioned. Also, you mentioned quite a lot about XT, and uh, this is this is something that's going to be new to a lot of listeners because uh, a lot of listeners are probably just getting around the idea of XG and maybe um, expected assists as well. But you're you're one of the kind of major things coming through uh, analytics or mainstream analytics is this idea of XT. Can you tell us exactly what that is? Tell us why you think Bernabe is not really at fault for for what's happening and where he fits in in this whole thing. 
I would love to. Um, first, I'd like to say, though, that um, XT shouldn't be a new idea for listeners. Because, um, there's a little podcast series called Lost in the Half Space with the wonderful Ruth Boyle, the less wonderful Christian Wolf, and the even less wonderful me, where we did discuss possession value models. But um, a quick recap is that uh, generally passes, but it can be applied to dribbles as well. But dribbles tend not to make a big impact because the ball doesn't move as far. Um, the idea is that based on hundreds of thousands, if not you know more of these instances before, you can sort of work out, kind of like XG does with shots, but how moving the ball from one area to another affects the team's probability of scoring. Before we get too into it, there is some stuff I'm working on that hopefully will be out soon if I can ever get around to finishing it, about how this sort of is flawed in a way. And I have talked about examples of where it's flawed before, like um, third man run routines at Brighton, where the guy passing back is credited negatively because he's doing a pass to a less dangerous area, but that's critical for the next pass forward. Mm. Um, and then you, you're also assuming that the average of every team is the optimal decision, which I'm, I'm not sure that's true. Um, so to get a positive number, you, you're moving the ball towards the opposition goal and to get a negative number, it's because you've gone back the way. But what you're saying here is that some teams like Brentford, is it Brentford you mentioned? Right. Um, would would be doing that as part of their kind of technique to get towards the goal. Yeah, it's not as simple as just towards the goal. Um, it is generally where probability of scoring would increase, which mm. obviously close to the opposition goal is generally higher, but it's not as like linear as that. It, yeah, because some angles like, would be less likely for you to score from. Yeah, exactly. Um, and like sometimes it'd be if, if you're passing sort of like to a certain area, then the next pass is likely to go somewhere else, somewhere that would create a goal. So it, it's through a sequence of passes that it would be calculated because it, it works back from the shot to the previous pass, 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 mm. so back. So that, that's the general idea and that there are massive flaws with that. But generally, um, if you read on The Athletic a bit ago about, I think it was a few years ago now, about Liverpool's recruitment, how they'd gotten so good, they talked about something called G+, plus, like goals added. And that was this magic recruitment tool that Liverpool were using to find all these hidden gems. It's the same thing. It was a possession value model. Because, like I said about scalability, that when you're looking on a mass scale, then you're seeing players that are moving the ball into more dangerous areas. Um, like I said, a lot of flaws. We can cover that another time. Um, but the idea is that players that score highly on this would generally be moving the ball from a less dangerous area to more. Comes with the same sort of things as like with expected assists, that that means set-piece takers are generally going to score highly because they're taking the ball from very low dangerous area to very high dangerous area. As soon as that pass connects, that would register as thingy because the more simplistic versions of these models, like the, the one that I would use that um, I sort of scraped together myself, um, wouldn't, wouldn't be able to take into account anything else because we don't have the data to account for you know the sort of defensive pressure around the receiver or anything like that. Quite simplistic, but it can show trends. And one of the trends it does show is that Burnaby ranks very, very highly in the entire league when you scale per 90. Um, before this weekend, because I haven't done this weekend stats yet, um, he was the second highest per 90 in the league with 655 minutes played, um, excluding everyone that had played a really small amount of minutes. Um, mm. The only player ahead was Barisic, who a big thing there is that he crosses the ball a lot. So you can take out his set pieces. It gets a little bit closer. You look at the average pass distance. His was 18 metres and Burnaby's was like 14.8 or something. Um, so you can sort of see that Burnaby is progressing on a high level by virtue of short passes rather than just lumping the ball into the box. 
And so we've is- got someone that's really high in XT, despite the fact that he would be getting told from, by Ange not to do the Hail Mary type crosses that Bjorn Barisic would be doing on a kind of weekly basis. Exactly. Because, I mean, if you lump the ball into the box every time, some of them connect, you're progressing the ball to a dangerous area. By this metric, that's going to boost your stats. Because a lot of these sort of models that try and model probability and stuff, they're affected massively by crosses because it's hard to quantify how good a cross is and stuff like that. So it's just, oh, well, you got the ball into the box. That's really close to the opposition goal. A lot of the time when the ball's near the opposition goal, there is a goal. Mm. Well, they suffer from this sort of flaw um, quite a lot, but without going too much into that, um, you can read more about it in the article. You tend to see that Burnaby scores really, really highly without crossing the ball into the box excessively. I think, according to Instat, it's 4% of his passes across this compared to Barisic's 11%. So um, what you tend to see is, again, when we're talking about this one-two, so in Argentina, um, the concept is toco y mi boy which translates to I play and I go. And this is sort of one of the concepts that they're raised on as a sort of play in this. And that's means that that goes through. And then when you watch Lanus, which is where Burnaby came from before um, us, there was a lot of this going on because it, it wasn't like an obscure part of Argentina. It's a half hour drive from, um, I think, the sort of middle of Buenos Aires. So that's the concept that he's become a professional player using these sort of one-twos. Um, there's another phrase, Tira Paredes, which translates to throwing down walls. And that's essentially what this is. You know, they would call it throwing down walls. You play this pass, you receive the ball back, and that's what the move is. And that's how you would break a team down. That's what you see from Bernabin. This is because I don't think I disagree that we suffer structural weaknesses with Bernabin in the team. My issue is labelling Bernabé as naive or incomplete because of this, because I don't think that Bernabé is at fault. I think he plays his style, and when you watch the clips in um, the article when he was in Argentina, it works really well. He cuts through teams very incisively, gets the ball up, because his teammates are on the same page. They know this, and you see this with quite a lot of relationist teams because they're on the lookout and the sort of geared towards this. You see a lot of these one-touch passes because that's the technique they're trying to, like create and um, the situations to play those moves but then you see in a Celtic Burnaby's playing that pass expecting it to come back in so the second the ball leaves his foot you know it's talking me boy he's looking to move I play and I go except the ball's not coming back to him and then all of a sudden there's a gap in our rest defense because in this sort of Eurocentric positionist model rest defense is more important than this idea of you know getting forward and I guess throwing down walls Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, what we're seeing a lot of. The, it's a cultural difference. And to be honest, I don't know if this was not acknowledged in recruitment or the idea is that we could maybe change him or whatever. And the end of the article discusses like our possible options with him and proposes a solution with a hybrid model um, that, in my biased opinion, I think is quite interesting. But um, mm-hmm. that's what we're seeing. So if you, if you watch Burnaby when he's playing these things where you think, oh, his positioning is awful, you know, if we concede a counter on that side, Look just before it, and this is what you'll see. You'll see him playing a pass and immediately making that direct run towards the box or forward. I don't think you can put that down as his flaw because that's that's how he's become a professional footballer. That's what he does. It would be ridiculous to suggest that he actually doesn't know what he's doing or to say that he's positionally unaware or anything like that because it's not true. And So does this give you... 
less kind of what what kind of impression does this give you of Celtic scouting and recruitment? Because watching these videos and it is a case of he will pass to someone, he will start the triangle, pass to someone, and then move into position to create the end of the triangle. So he'll just be constantly moving into different positions, all the way up the park, like to the centre forward position, if he can get enough giving goes. What does that say to you about the, the Celtic recruitment system? Does it say to you that we knew that this was the way that he played and we either wanted it in the team, we thought we could coach it out of him? Does it maybe does it maybe suggest to you that we should have been looking for someone that doesn't play like that because that's not the way that we play? What does it give you more or less faith in the Celtic scouting system? I think you could look at it either way, really, because the the fee's a big one. So according to transfer market, um, that's the biggest we fee we've paid for a fullback, um, for, for a natural fullback, um. So it's not like it's a project player thinking, can we fix him? Uh, say fix, God, that's, that makes it sound bad. <laughs> uh, can we mould him to the system we want to play? Um, and that that could be our intention. But if I was being cynical, I'd say that we've seen his positive traits and positive stats and thought we'll try and turn him into something he's not. If that's the case, then we probably would have been better off signing someone who's more stylistically similar because you're essentially paying a premium for traits that you don't want from Burnaby. You're paying for the fact that he can do this in advance, but then you're trying to take that away from him, which is what's made him a footballer. And on on a human level, I don't think it's really right to try and change that sort of cultural interpretation of his football. Um, But I was having a conversation with someone earlier about this as well, that obviously last season I had a lot of criticism for Giacomacus um, because he didn't fit the system as well. So, and my, my idea was he probably shouldn't be in the team. And I think this is where you sort of look at strengths and weaknesses of adapting. I think Giacomacus' strengths um, were good, but the weaknesses that contrasted with the system caused real issues that just could not be remedied and really broke down a lot of what we were doing as a team. Whereas I think Burnaby's strengths are perhaps a little more unique in our team and a little more worth it when his I don't want to call it again a defensive issue but the sort of rest defence structure that's disrupted can be mitigated with him so what I proposed in the article is a change in shape where essentially the right eight drops into the pivot position the pivot moves over to the inverted left back position and mm-hmm. um, the invert the pivot that's in the inverted left back position the left eight pushes up a little bit the left winger drop back a little bit, and then they are in this position to create relations with Burnaby. So Burnaby is essentially given a free roll. To, to balance it, the striker also drops out to kind of a right eight position, and it's more like a false nine system. Um, and the idea would be that Burnaby has a bit more of a free roll where you still have the structure, you still have the two, three at the back, because that's essential to the system we're playing. But then you also have the license to tell Burnaby, actually, yeah, yeah do what you're doing, do what you're good at, because that's what we've signed you for. Um but yeah, I mean, went off on a bit of a tangent, but in terms of Celtic's recruitment, I think Burnaby is definitely a good signing because he's a good player, and that's no doubt. Whether we thought we could change what he's doing, whether we thought we could assimilate him to what we're doing, or whether we thought we can tweak things, I'm not 100% sure, but it is definitely a strange one. 
Yeah, and I just wonder if it's easier to go from one system to the other than it is to go to, to the way he is going. And uh, yeah, I'm hopeful for him, but it does feel like, it feels like it was one of the signings that was made kind of like in between us getting a recruitment system up and running, you know, like it's maybe with one guy in the building and he, he, he saw some some signs of life in the Argentinian league. And uh, again, his, his role in the victory was, was outstanding. What a finish. I was delighted for him, his first goal for Celtic. And it came in a game where we had a ridiculous handball decision, like the ridiculous handball decision that we got against the Bernabe. So, I mean, these things even out. <laughs> as we've always been told. So let's let's move on from the the game again. That's in uh, that's in your medium. Is uh, how do you find it? Just Stephen Russell at uh, medium dot com or something. I don't know how so, these things work. But the handle is at srfootball underscore, which is the same as my Twitter one, where you can find a link of it there. Or if you want access to sort of like all of my work delivered straight to your inbox, then Stephen Russell dot substack dot com. That's Stephen with a ph Russell double s double l. Um, that you can sign up to my newsletter and any new work I put out, I'll send out either in the newsletter or with a link to it. There you go. If you want Stephen Russell, it's sliding into your inbox. You now know how. So another thing that uh, you are infamous for, I mean, I think you were infamous for the from the first part of the last season and then famous towards the end of the last season, your X points table. Uh, we are playing Rangers this weekend. So I want to do a, a, a slight preview. There'll be more of a preview on the weekend update, but I want to talk about them. I want to talk about them after the World Cup. My fear, my great, great fear. I've already made my bleak prediction of the week, which is Jota will miss a penalty against them. Which, That's um, a sick, sick prediction to me. <laughs> is, uh, is, I don't know why it came into my oh, head. But, uh, Keith Jackson... <laughs> Not a name you hear often around these parts has has his weekly column out, and he is talking about Tillman and how Tillman is the greatest thing since sliced bread. He says that uh, if Ross Wilson can land the American youngster in a permanent deal this summer for a fee anywhere close to the region of five million pounds, then the local polizei and he has spelt police in German incorrectly, ought to be plastering mugshots of the Ibrox Club's sporting director on every lamppost in Munich. But he also goes on in his article to say that he is the greatest thing at Rangers, but perhaps Michael Beale should not be playing him on the weekend because he is a luxury. What do you, first of all, what, what do you think of this idea of Tillman being their best player, but also he shouldn't play against us because he's a luxury? And also, your your terrifying information that you've given me and kept me up at night is that Rangers are performing better than us since the World Cup, uh, based on your X-Points table. Can we then go back to the idea that your X-Points table is bullshit because it's not telling us what we want to hear? Um, <laughs> and also, we have this idea of game state. I've been thinking about this. This is just something that's completely random that's come into my head. Can there be some kind of justification for us performing less better in X points because of league state in that we are nine points clear? Is there anything in that? Is there anything to suggest that they have much more kind of like fire about them because they have to claw back nine points, whereas we have a cushion of nine points? Is there anything in that? Or am I just grasping at straws? Take it away. 
we'll start with um, the end there because I think you fired about four questions at me. Um, <laughs> but in terms of league motivation, this is something that we consider in terms of probability generally, but more based on whether a team is unmotivated. So if it's a dead rubber at the end of a season, you're more likely to get a draw than in a regular game. Um, in terms of teams being behind, having motivation and teams ahead, there's not really any evidence for that. But when we talk about evidence for this, we're talking a lot about inductive evidence because that's what we can have. So you generally have studies that are quite nomothetic in the idea of we're looking at these numbers to try and create a rule. So the problem there is that it may well have an influence, but the situations where it does what you want it to or does a good thing could be being cancelled out by situations where it possibly does a bad thing. So the net sort of like effect is zero, but that's not to say it could never have an effect mm. because that's the nature of football, right? And it's interesting you mentioned game state as well because um, I've been working on something sort of alongside John McKenzie's work on this with XG. Um, and a little spoiler, there is a correlation between XG or performance and game state. So we do have this sort of idea that things can affect these things and they're not perfect. And that's essentially sort of always been the stance that X points is not, um, it's not like down to the exact thing. Because I think the best quote on this is all models are wrong, but some are less wrong than others, right? Mm. And this is the idea. So my model is, if you'll allow me the brag, it's good. It's in terms of expected points and sort of working out this probability, it is one of the better models available at the minute. But that doesn't mean it's perfect. Doesn't mean that a team can't under or overperform it for an extended period. It means that they're not likely to. And because now, um, over the past couple of years, it's been tested extensively across tens of leagues, tens of seasons, and generally, you will see those sort of trends. And that's where we can see, you know, where we said last season, well, actually, Celtics expected points. You know, that they're quite a jump above Rangers. The fact that they're six points behind in the league. Celtic are probably going to win this league regardless. And that's what, you know, happened. That's what um, came to fruition. The difference is at the minute, I'll read out the exact numbers in a minute. It, it's not big and we're talking again, small samples. So it's it's not something to dwell on. I just like to scare you sometimes. Um, <laughs> but generally, I think when we're talking about these models, it is quite interesting because Christian and me have often called it look when we're talking about under our own performance. But we use look as a bit of a catch-all for anything that a model can't measure. Um, and th- there's a lot of work done in this sort of area. I cannot remember the guy's name for the life of me, so apologies to whoever it is. But there was a guy um, who essentially correctly predicted the financial crash of a week. Um, I think it was Andy Halliday. <laughs> yeah, got it. Um, and none of the models did. And that sort of launched his um, stock into the stratosphere because then everyone wanted to listen to him because how did he predict it? And his idea was essentially around, he he was generally against these sort of models because they're so simplistic um, and quite platonist in how they work. They, you know, it's sort of like a perfect form of what should be in the real world, not like that. But he also doesn't believe in the idea of randomness. So when, when we're saying, look, we're not literally meaning the idea of some sort of random, you know, ethereal force that's changing something because i mean football's a physical game you could if you have the resources and the you know ability to measure it and you could work out exactly 
whether a goal will be scored based on a shot rate. Because you could work out, you know, the spring in the goalkeeper's step, the humidity in the air, the wind direction. You know, the physics, the basically. Exactly, right? Um, you could work all that out. So that there is no randomness in that sense. So when we're talking about look, we're talking about stuff that we can't yet measure because the models are wrong. But they're also still a good guide because based on what we can measure, we can cover a really good chunk of that variance. And that's essentially what this comes down to. So you could never say... 100% Celtic are overperforming and that's fine. You know, we have been a bit clickbaity about it sometimes, especially last season um, when we were going about it on Twitter. You've only got, what is it, 140, 240 characters or something? Um, you know, we were winding people up. But generally the idea is if you were going to bet one way or the other, you'd generally bet on the regression. That doesn't mean it's impossible that a team has found a blind spot and could continue it. In terms of um, whether Celtic have found that, I don't think so, because I don't think we're doing anything different from last season, where we did also see that regression. But the, the difference, it's starting to show up as a little bit more in the model now. Um, we're overperforming by 11.16 points. But how many of those games have been like late winners and moments like that? And you know, it's a few games like that. If they didn't go that way, we wouldn't be. It's very fine margins, but... Um, Onto the numbers that I'm trying to keep you awake at nights with. Um, so from the start of the season till the World Cup break, Celtic were averaging 2.41 expected points per game. Rangers were averaging 2.21. So we, we were quite a way ahead. Now Celtic have improved. We're averaging 2.51 since then. Rangers are averaging 2.52. That's very, very close together. Um, I, can't. I like it, but I do not like it. <laughs> the point is there again, you know, we're dissecting the sample, which for the purposes of our analysis of have Rangers improved under Beal, have they closed that gap that existed under Van Bronckhorst? Yes, they, they have improved, right? And I think anyone who's sort of watched both teams would probably tell you the same thing because they were a bit of a mess under Van Bronckhorst. Whether they're better than us now, this is the issue when you dissect that sample to make this conclusion. You're cutting it to a small sample. Have they been you know, more fortunate in the sort of games they've had? Has it fit their style a little bit better? You've got these sort of questions that ultimately can't be answered. In terms of looking ahead to the derby, and the last one, and this sort of touches on what you were saying about Tillman, I think Tillman's a good player. Um, I think he works in a lot of ways for them. I think painting him as the luxury player in that team is a bit of a stretch. Um, and also painting five million as a steal. I think it's a good enough fee. I think if it came up at that, they'd pay it. But I mean, it's hardly a robbery. Um, mm. But the, the problem was last time that when they went with the double pivot they did without Raskin and they played Tillman over Cantwell, Tillman stays a lot further forward and is a lot more direct in terms of getting into the box. Um don't have the numbers to hand, but in terms of, um, and this is something we work out at work because we offer things on, you know, shots on target outside the box and goals outside the box. So we generally need to be able to work out the probability of players hitting these. Tillman, for a player that isn't a striker, generally for outside the box stuff is quite low. So he's direct, he gets towards the box. Cantwell is a lot more for the possession in midfield. He drifts out, he's a lot more fluid, and he aids them bringing the ball to the park and it's the same with Raskin and that's why you didn't see Raskin start and then Cantwell not because it sort of came as a two. Raskin's a little bit more robust, he carried the ball forward he would play those grounded passes 
Whereas when you're looking at sort of like lunchroom and stuff, he wasn't as keen on doing that. Um, and that's essentially what you were seeing that if you want to play through Celtic, you'd have probably went Raskin and Cantwell. The fact that he went Tillman was for the directness. I think calling that a luxury player, again, massive stretch. He's fine. He's just a different player to Cantwell and it ultimately depends on Beale's approach. Um, I think Raskin might be out of the derby. He, yeah, he out so of- does that mean they go hoofball again? I mean, if they don't have the players to play for us? See, I actually thought they probably did have the players if they'd have played maybe Kamara and Jack. Um, I think that would have probably been fine because that's that's what they were doing before against um, other teams. I think it was County they played before the last derby and you saw a lot of that where at one point they actually, um, I think it might have been Lundstrom and Jack and Lundstrom went off injured on 11 minutes um, and they actually just brought Tillman on and just went to a single pivot. Um, but that's essentially what you were seeing. They were trying to pass forward and Kent and Cantwell were sort of drifting about and dropping off to help open up the lanes to the forwards. I think they can do it with just Cantwell. I think if you see Tillman in the lineup again, you're probably going to see something a bit more direct. So overall, final question before we wrap up, how do you see the game going? If you were to kind of tell someone this is the way it's going to go, and Saturday, this is my prediction, uh, the weekend. How, how is it going to go? Um, I, I think I've definitely got a fear about our centre-backs again, as I always do when we're playing them, because was like Taylor went off injured, but that was just dead leg. Yeah, so hopefully. <laughs> ho- hopefully he'll be back. Um, hopefully Hatate will be back. If we're going into this game uh, without Taylor or Hatate, if you're just about one of them, I'm really worried about the way we try and build up because Rangers' press last time was quite flawed in the way they kept leaving gaps because Kamara had to jump up on McGregor. If they fix that this time, I could see a lot of issues for us in build-up. And then in terms of defence, again, I said it last time, I was really interested to see if Rangers' new sort of build-up under Beal could stand up to us. And then he's essentially shot the bed, hasn't he, and not played mm. Cantwell and Raskin. So I'm intrigued to see what he does this time because I think it could work, especially if Moy's in the team. Um, I don't think Moy is mobile enough to cope with that on their left-hand side of Kent dropping in and out with Barisic coming forward and linking up with him and then with the left pivot pushing on. So we'll see. I think it's very personnel dependent, but I'll be boring and go with a 2-2 draw. Do you think it changes anything, the fact that we don't need to win and they do? No, not overly. I don't think so. Um, In terms of probability, when we're working that out, it's it's not really something that would factor in. Okay, there you go. 2-2 draw at home and Jota missing up. (laughs) I mean, you come to the review for the positivity and you get it every single week, even when we change uh, guests on the show. You didn't even get on for Ange leaving us for Chelsea? I'm like... I'm not gonna, you're making me like uh, draw a therapeutic cool S on my notepad just to kind of get over that idea uh, Stephen it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for having me I've enjoyed chatting with you you're very welcome and I'm your host Graham Mackay we hope that, that I mean Christian may even stay down in London for the coronation you know what he's like he loves his royals so coming from Norway so hopefully he'll be back next week but he might have got lost we we didn't get the name tag on him he might be the new Paddington Bear who knows <laughs> I've been Graham McKay this has been the review and we will catch you down the road